0: It really is a delight to be with you this morning. I missed being with you at least in person uh, last week as my family and I were on vacation and you can tell by the lovely hue of my skin color (laughs) that I have uh, been enjoying the beaches of Florida and I've come back home to a much hotter Tennessee (laughs) than the Florida that I left. It really is good to be in the house of the Lord on this special day, this Father's Day, this day where we keep in mind God's grace in and through the working of of fathers, and most especially through the father's love, as revealed to us from Holy Scripture. You know, the Lord is always looking out for His church. I was struck by that again uh, this week. As I was receiving, as a number of you have asked questions about the upcoming General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America, you might also note even this morning in my pastoral notes, I write about our national meeting as a denomination that's coming up this next week and note a few of its purposes and will in the weeks to come talk about some of its actions and some of the highlights from it. But I was reading while I was in that wonderful space on the beach a collection of historical stories from the Church of Scotland, a wonderful little book by the great uh, Ian Murray. And as I was uh, reading this history of the Church of Scotland, I was reminded of how often things are the same throughout history. Um, how John Knox, the great uh, founder, as some would argue, of Presbyterianism in Scotland, faced great challenges in his day against uh, the Roman Catholic Church of the late medieval period and the early Reformation period. I read about Robert Bruce, not Robert the Bruce, who you associate with the Fields of Bannockburn, but the Reverend Robert Bruce um, and the challenges of a unfaithful ministry in the day of Scotland and his generation and his own striving for renewal in the Church of Scotland. I was struck again by Thomas Chalmers during the season of disruption, how the Lord used him in the Church of Scotland for renewal. And what Ian Murray was displaying as I was reading this history was how often every age faces its challenges. And there's always hurdles for the church, there's always warfare in the body of Christ, and there's always a need for the Lord to lead and to guide. We sometimes think that our time is unique. That's because we don't know history very well. And when we read history and we realize that God has been faithful to His church throughout the years, He's raised up men to lead and defining moments, um, ways in which the church has both grown and purified. We have many reasons to hope that the God who has been faithful for thousands of years to His people will remain so into the future now why do I mention that here even before we look at Exodus chapter 14 well such is a defining moment in the life of the people of God that we're about to read about in Exodus chapter 14 do you know the people of God thought that this was the end of the road for them they had just gotten out of Egypt they were just beginning to taste of freedom and lo and behold Israel finds itself in the crosshairs of Egyptian horsemen and chariots on the edge of the Red Sea, caught next to an Egyptian fort and tower with nowhere to run. And this is about to be the shortest exodus in all of history. And the Lord makes a way where there seems like there is no way. Thus is the story of the good news Of what God brings out of the dead ends in the life of His church. And what we see is out of the dead ends in the life of the church. And even in our personal lives. God through his grace unfolds a path of deliverance. Let's look for that path of deliverance as we read now. Exodus chapter 14 beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. And encamp in, in Pi-ha-hiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is it that we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army. And overtook them encamped by the sea at pi ha in front of Baal-Zephron. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us? And bringing us out of Egypt. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without the one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall on them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. As the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. And of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall on them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would indeed by the Spirit lead us out, that you would come and you would meet with us graciously in this word, that you would free us from doubts and from fears, that you would cause us to be astonished by your grace, and that you would fashion us, and refashion us, even recreate us in your sight. That we might live and walk as new creatures in Jesus. Would you hear this prayer? And with the wisdom of knowing every heart in this room, would you portion out your grace and meet us in it? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It felt like such a new and bright chapter was beginning. Pharaoh had told the people of Israel to get out. I don't want anything more to do with you people. If you stick around here longer, the rest of us are probably going to die. Just get out. And the Egyptians felt the same way. They showered the people of Israel with gold and with silver and with clothes. They, they left Egypt rich with the possessions of the Egyptians. And now the people of Israel have made their way beyond the wall of Egypt and they've got their sights set towards the promised land. Yes, this is what they've been waiting for. The day has dawned, the day of freedom, the march to the promised land, a new chapter in the saga of the people of Israel, one of redemption, one of hope, one of an upward and steady climb. the graces of God. And then chapter 14 happens. And the people of Israel are told by God, no less, in the first four verses, to turn back. You've gone too far. You've gotten too far from Egypt. No, you're barely outside of the shadow of its wall, but you're too far from Egypt. I want you to turn around and I want you to go to Pi-ha-hiroth. I want you to go to Megdal, this tower fort on the outskirts of Egypt. I want you to go there right beside the Red Sea and I want you to encamp. Because there you'll be hemmed in on every side. You'll be within shot of an easy chariot ride of the megalomaniac Pharaoh who will come with his soldiers and his highest technology of weaponry And you will experience the fright of your life. I am leading you, the people of Israel, to a dead end. You're welcome. I am the Lord. Chapter 14. That's how it begins. Now what's interesting about that is that some of us in this room, if you were to categorize or retell your own life story, you'd say, "Mm mm-hmm, I've been here before. The Lord has led me to many dead ends, many mysterious turns. He has taken me to places where it has felt like I am under the shadow of an Egyptian fort right beside a Red Sea in which I hear the clatter of horse hooves and chariot wheels on their way to kill me. That's what it's felt like at times in my life. It's even more difficult for you to even pay attention to anything that's happening this morning in the midst of worship because you're so fretful about the things going on in your own life. You found yourself in a kind of stuck place, a dead end, and you can't help but realize that it's God's providence that's got you here. It's His leading. There are things that have come into your life that were outside of your control, things that you could not have experienced otherwise that you have to chalk this up to the Lord's plan. And in this case, it's even richer and clearer than that. We can realize from the Lord's own mouth, He has directed the people of Israel to this place. He has put them in the midst of a dead end. Now, when you look at this from just a sheer human standpoint, it is, as one commentator put it, sheer lunacy what it is that the Lord is doing here. He is, this is military suicide. This is is putting yourself in the way of the target of a Pharaoh who undoubtedly we know we can't trust, who is full of deceit and is always after seeking what's best for him. We are hardly surprised by the fact that he's had a change of mind, a change of heart in the midst of this passage and he's now sad that no longer are the Israelites going to be around to serve us. And so he's going to go get them. He's going to go bring them back. And what's fascinating is the Lord has planned all of that. He's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's going to harden the Egyptians. He's going to put the Israelites out there like sitting ducks in order to draw Pharaoh's own attention and conclusion, that the people of Israel don't even know where they're going. They're lost in the wilderness. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to take them back in. Now, why did the Lord do this? Why does the Lord often lead men, nations, churches, individuals, why does he lead us to vulnerable places? To places where we're exposed The places where we can be exploited and we have nowhere to run. Well, there's a short answer and there's a longer answer. There's a simple answer and there's a complex answer. And the simple answer is actually spoken for you very clearly in the text. That's helpful. Verse 4 and verse 18, both in the text, reiterate the purpose or the reason behind this. And you know what it is? It's very simple. It's the glory of God. That's why he does it. It's the glory of God. God's after His glory. I would suggest Israel's after safety. And that's understandable given where they're coming from. We can hardly blame them or fault them for that. But that's not what God's after in this moment. Now, He's after their safety. We see that in the text. But by way of His glory, not at the sacrifice of His glory, by the way of His glory, He's after the safety and the security, the redemption and the deliverance of the people of God. He's after showing forth his glory. Now, the question we want to ask is how does leading the people of Israel into a vulnerable, dead-end place, exposed to the enemy, how does that reveal God's glory? How does that happen? Well, I want you to look with me in three ways at this text. Three ways that we see God's glory, his power, His grace, His goodness, His love, His majesty revealed in this text. And number one is this. I want you to see that His glory is revealed by what's exposed in us in the dead end. He exposes our fear and our faithlessness. This has got to happen for God's glory to shine brightly. What's in us has to be revealed. And God's after that. And you see that that happened here in this text, right? That he exposes what's inside the people of Israel. Notice verse 10. As they see on the horizon the chariots on their way, we're told the people are greatly afraid. They're overcome by fear. Now as we look... Note a second ago, we can't really blame them, and that would be natural in this case to be fearful. But what you see is underneath the fear, and what's often true underneath our fear, is that more is going on than just a natural fear. If you almost get hit by a car going home today, God forbid, your pulse will probably quicken. <laughs> your heart will probably raise a little bit. You'll be afraid. And I'm not going to, you know, don't see me as, as on your Shoulder saying to you in that moment, You fearful person, what's wrong with you? We would say, If you weren't fearful, I'd worry about you a little bit. It would be natural to be fearful in that situation. That's not actually the concern. The problem is, fears often reveal something deeper, sinister, even sinful. And we see that among the people of Israel here, don't we? We see that their fears immediately begin to reveal hearts that are, that are angry. Angry in verse 11. Setting forth even allegations and accusations against Moses and against God. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us out here to this dead end place so that we can die in the wilderness by the sword of the Egyptians? Now, do you hear the biting sarcasm in the text there? (laughs) You know, right? What is Egypt known for? Like, what do you know about Egypt? Pyramids, right? right you know, what are pyramids? Graves. <laughs> They're known for their graves, right? There's plenty of graves in Egypt. That was not the issue. Have you really brought us out to the wilderness because there aren't enough graves in Egypt? Is that what this whole mission is about? What have you done in bringing us out here? You and you can hear in that the anger seeded with allegation and accusation. But underneath that, what also do you hear? distrust distrust now could it be that for generations the false promises of Pharaoh have worn down the people of Israel so that they're pretty cynical you know could it be that the distant promises of Abraham are so distant uh, that it's felt like pie in the sky to them and they've really been watching for the other shoe to drop this whole time not really sure that they're actually going to get out and this is just like oh yeah here comes the betrayal. We expected it. Is it that? Yes, they've seen the show of plagues. The, the power of God has been revealed to them. But it, it's clear that it's just begun to make an inroad into their heart, that their faith is newly formed. The inroads are, are barely noticeable. The, the path to faith is one that's not been deeply trod yet by these by these Hebrew people. And so they're ready. They're even saying. Maybe it would be better to, for us to just go ahead. And, and, and give ourselves up to Egypt. Verse 13 and 14. Just leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Well, It would have been better for us to just to serve the Egyptians. Than to die out here in, in the wilderness. It's an amazing statement. Amazing admission. That, that they're willing to jump ship. They're willing to shift allegiances. We're willing to go back to the lordship of Pharaoh. If it means we get a little bit more time here on earth. At least... At least there, we knew what to expect. Isn't that sometimes the the trouble with faith? At least there, we know what to expect. It's familiar. Psychologists often know that that even abuse victims find it difficult to separate from, from abusers often because of just the sense of familiarity and the sense of... The relationship being something they've always known. Dysfunctional as it is, it's at least a dysfunction they know. It's better than the dysfunction they don't know, is how they often process it. Some of us are, are that way as well, even when we think about making a transition to um, a new job or a, or a new town. And, and even though the job looks good, we, we know that there's, there's things we don't know. And when we get there, things won't be quite like we thought it would be. And yes, things aren't great where we are, but at least we know the ways that they're not great. And so maybe we can tolerate that and manage it and not be out there on a limb and risk that something would be different than expected and have myself defeated. Some of you are like, how did you get in my head? How did you know did I do that I did it? Right, that's exactly why some of us are. The people of Israel are, are no different in that regard. Least, you know, it wasn't great in Egypt, but at least we, we knew we would live because he needed us to work. The allegiances can, can shift really quickly when, when a threat arises, doesn't it? It's not unlike us when, oh, I don't know, on a, on a Sunday morning where we're worshiping and we're praising the Lord and we're saying to ourselves, I will never doubt the Lord again, right? Right? <laughs> until 2 o'clock this afternoon, right? You get to 2 o'clock this afternoon and you're like, what's he up to? Like, this is weird. What's going on? Listen, the, the Lord leads us to a desperate place, to a dead end, in order that we might feel our need for him, but even more than that, that we might see that in our feeling of need, we run to places like panic. We run to places like anger. We run to places like distrust and and a cynical spirit that shows us that we need Him and exposes not just our fear, but exposes our faithlessness. You see, Israel is free in an external sense, but Israel is not yet free from themselves. The darkness still resides within. They're fearful and they're faithless, and we can see that because they're drawn back to their old life. The way that we are drawn back to our old ways of inhabiting life. When we know that the Lord has called us to something different. I love the way Philip Reichen says it in his commentary. He says, our problem is that we only come out part way. We decide to follow Christ, but as soon as we start having problems, we get scared and we go right back to our old ways. Our old coping mechanisms like anger and addiction and depression, and distraction. No matter how much we used to hate these things, there was a security in the way that we used to live. And so we return. You see, part of the pathway to seeing the glory of God Revealed in this text is that you have to understand he leads us into faith-stretching dead ends. He leads us into places of exposure and vulnerability. He leads us into trial and tribulation because he wants to reveal the faithlessness inside of us so that he can overwhelm us with reasons to trust him more. You see, that's what he's doing in this text. Not only does the dead end expose the fearfulness and the faithlessness of the people of Israel, the dead end, secondly, provides a basis. There in verses 13 and 14, that we've read earlier this This preachment from Moses, this this declaration from the prophet Moses. That's how he's remembered by the people of Israel. Language often used of, of him as the mouthpiece of God. He speaks here from God on the behalf of God to the people of God. And he says to them, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. (laughs) Now, if you were looking in the scripture for a textbook definition for what salvation by grace through faith looks like in the scriptures, it would be these verses right here in verses 13 and 14. Fear not, stand still. In other words, don't do anything. Israel, don't do anything. Stay right where you are. Don't move. Don't speak. We see what happens when you speak. You get it wrong. Like, don't say anything. Just don't say anything. Don't do anything. Just stay put and watch. That's all I want you to do. And I will work salvation for you. I will work salvation for you. Do you, you know where fear came from for the people of Israel? It's, it's where fear often comes from for us. It's, it's that they looked at their circumstances and they, then they considered their resources and they said, we don't have a shot. What Israel didn't know is what we often don't realize. That's the point That's no reason to be afraid. God knew that. He put you in this position not because he wasn't aware of that. He knows you don't have the resources. He's not actually asking you to do anything. He's asking you to not do something. To actually stay put, don't move, be quiet, and just watch me do all the work. I will work for you the salvation that I have planned for you. This dead end, this vulnerable place, God has brought them not to kill them, but to reveal His amazing grace to them. To show forth His glory to them. He knows alone they will die, but alone they're not. He's with them. Yahweh is with them. The Lord is with them. With Yahweh, they can't help but live. He's going to fight for them. He is the warrior for his people. The only thing the people of Israel can contribute is silence. Just stand there. Be quiet and watch. I have a, I have a friend, you know, you need friends like this. I have, a, I have a friend who, when I was growing up, I would say, you know, we'd be working on something and I'd say, I was... Hey, I was thinking, and he'd stop. Before he would even hear what I would say, I'd say, I was thinking, and he'd interject. See, that's where you went wrong. Right? You need friends like this. That's essentially what God is doing here. You know, you can almost, you know, you can almost feel the people of Israel going, yeah, uh, mm mm-mm, mm, no. That's where you went wrong. You almost said something. You almost tried to do something. That's where you went wrong. Now listen, I think this is super, super difficult. I think this is one of the most, I think this is why salvation, this is why we're very uncomfortable with grace, ultimately. I have a British friend who um, says that, that Americans aren't human beings. Hold on. They aren't human beings. He says they're human doings. Right. He says they, they, they understand their humanity by what they do by what they accomplish, by what they achieve. That's how they, that's how they understand themselves, how they know themselves, is, is their human doings, they're not human, human beings. Now you can imagine if that's true, and I caught a groan or two out there, which I took to be agreement, maybe painful agreement. If that's true, it's very difficult to hear, stand still. You can't do anything. I'm not asking you to do anything. If you try to do something, you're going to mess it up. Just don't. Just stop. Be silent. Don't even think about saying something. See the salvation of the Lord. If you try to do something, if you try to say something, you're going to rob from His glory. And you're going to distract from the purpose. See the salvation of the Lord. That's what he's saying here. Do you see, when God brings us to dead ends, especially the ultimate dead end, the the ultimate dead end which each of us, whether we know it or not, we're, were born in the reality of sin and the condemnation and the guilt of that sin of which there was nothing that you and I could do. Absolutely nothing we could do to try to free ourselves from it. When we realize that that's the state that we actually live and exist in, And that's the ultimate dead end that we're experiencing. God is saying to us when he sends Christ to pay the penalty for our sin, to free us from the record of condemnation, to robe us in his righteousness, to equip us with everything needed in salvation, that in a sense, in a very real sense, what he's saying to you is stand still. Don't do anything. Be quiet and watch. Watch what he's saying to you just watch watch what i'm doing this salvation is not something you do it's something i do it's something i accomplish it's a completed act and the dead end is meant to bring us to that very place he's humbling us so that we will learn to ultimately depend upon him do you see these are why the dead this is why the dead end is here to reveal the glory of God's amazing grace. But there's a third thing. There's a third reason why we're here at the dead end. Not only does it expose our fear and our faithfulness. Does it create a basis for the revealing of God's amazing grace. But thirdly, it sets the stage for recreating within us true faith. You know, in the latter half of Exodus 14, we see God's power on display in the most dramatic way. Probably the most dramatic way, save the cross in all of Scripture. At the Lord's lead, Moses took his staff and he stretched out his hand over the sea. And the sea was divided into a wall of water on the left and on the right. And the people of Israel walk between those walls of water across the Red Sea on their way to the other side safely. The other side represents salvation. It represents the place where they are are safe from their enemy. At the same time that this water is being separated out and the people of Israel are about to make their way across on the dry land, we're told in verses 19 and 20 that the angel of the Lord is present. This angel has been leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. He's been at the front of the ranks, the host of Israel. Now he's being taken and he's being put at the the rear flank of Israel. And we're told the pillar of cloud that, that the people of Israel were following has now been moved. And it's moved all the way to the back. Why is that? Well, that's where the Egyptians are coming from, right? They're hemmed in the Red Sea and the fort, the Egyptians are coming this way. There's no way out. So he creates a barrier. The angel of the Lord, God's warrior, who's going to fight for the people of Israel, is there with the pillar of cloud guarding as a shield his people as they make their way across. The Egyptians can make no advance upon the Hebrew people. Now what's interesting about all of this is it's quite clear from the textual clues that we are meant to hear an echo, we might say a rumble or an adumbration from the creation story. Where where do we see that? Well, for instance, the Hebrew word ruach is used there in verse 21. You see it when we're told that Moses stretched out his hand and the sea was driven back by what? A strong east wind, and notice that the wind pushed the waters. We're told in the text it divided the waters. Do you remember that language in creation story? How the wind hovered over the waters, Genesis one, and then the waters were separated from the waters, and the and what appeared out of the waters in the creation story? Do you remember dry land? So when it says dry land here, it's meant to clue you in that. Oh, there's a replay of creation happening here. And you're like, oh, are we sure that that's happening? Yes, we are. Genesis chapter 8. Same thing happens in the flood. Do you remember when the flood begins to subside, what the Lord does when he brings a wind? And and the earth appears once again out of the waters. It's the same language. And the, the language of wind, the language in the Hebrew, ruach, can mean wind or spirit. So we see what's actually happening here is that the people of Israel are walking in toward a new creation. They as a people are becoming new creatures as they cross from one side of the Red Sea to the other. They're, they're, they're crossing, if we could put it this way, in the language of Colossians earlier in our assurance of parting, they're being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Now we see that actually beautifully within the text when we're, we're told. I don't know if you've ever caught this before, because you know, this is not in the Charlton Heston film, all right? Right? It's not, it's not there. It's not there. If you go back and you view it, when does the Exodus happen in the film? During the day. Do you, you notice when the Exodus happens here in the crossing of the Red Sea? It's at night. It's actually in the dark of night. When the pillar of cloud actually moves to the rear flank of the people of Israel, you remember that the pillar of cloud is also referred to here in this text as the pillar of fire. What does fire do? It creates light. We're told that the people of Israel are actually in the light. The light actually remains for the people of Israel while it's still dark at night by the power of the pillar of fire. But the Egyptians remain in the darkness. We have the Hebrew people walking in the light towards the new creation that the Lord has for them as His people while their enemies remain in the darkness, waiting for the chaos of decreation. Oh, you lost me there. when when the pillar of cloud and the angel of the Lord release the Egyptians to make their way across the Red Sea, and Israel has made their way entirely across to the other side, what begins to happen is that Moses stretches his arms back over for the closing of the waters. And that which was new creation became decreated as judgment fell upon the people of Egypt. Egypt. Upon Pharaoh and the whole of the army. Do you know in the Old Testament, water is a picture of chaos. It's a picture of instability. It's a picture of something you, that's powerful, that's unpredictable. It's why at the beginning of the creation story, when, the, when we're told that the Spirit of the Lord, the wind of the Lord hovers over the waters is that this nascent new creation is going to rise into order out of chaos. That's the symbol or the picture that's being given. Notice that Egypt descends into chaos. They descend into the nightmare of judgment. As the people of Israel walk in the newfound faith as creatures of Yahweh. You know, this really is this creation story, but this is really the salvation story that each of us experience. You know, for the wages of sin is death, right? But the free gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus, new creatures in Christ, don't we? Right? New creation. Uh, That's really happening. You're children of the light. You're, You're a people who walk by the light of the Lord's word. You're people who have been recreated and fashioned after the likeness of Jesus, your Savior. You have, you've passed through, as His people, the waters, you see. Do you know there's this very strange verse in 1 Corinthians that speaks of the people of, of Israel as passing through the waters as they were baptized, it says, into the cloud and into the sea, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And catch it and you're taking the message home at the end of the bulletin. You can just go crazy thinking about that. The New Testament refers to the people of Israel's passing through the Red Sea as a baptism. As the beginning of a new life. As the creation of a new people. As He's recreating us in faith. Do you know how to experience something of, of that on, on the day of, of Christ's resurrection, Right? The disciples were completely disillusioned at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know we, know, we learned just a couple of weeks ago, Peter's going to go back to fishing. They're done. All the, the, they put their hopes and dreams into had died. They had come to what? A dead end. They'd come to a dead end. Mary Magdalene, on the morning of Jesus' resurrection, was coming to a tomb. I think she thought it was a dead end. I think she expected to find a body. She came there with embalming spices. And it was out of the dead end of the cross and the death of Jesus that the pathway to life and deliverance was born. It was in that moment where the Lord was weaving the salvation of his people. It was in that moment where his victory was being won. Do you see the cross looked like the enemy was winning? The cross looked like being hemmed in by an Egyptian fort next to the Red Sea with the greatest military superpower of the day charging towards you. That's what it looked like. And then it looked like the Lord made a way when there was no way. The Lord made a way when there was no way. And listen, there are things in your life right now that are sticking points, that are dead ends, where you feel vulnerable and exposed and uncertain and overwhelmed and anxiety and depression and all kinds of struggles are riddled through our minds and our hearts as we cope with the realities of life. I can't say that in the scope and time of this particular place, all of those things are going to be tidied up with a bow on them. But what I can say is if you're in Christ... When you walk into the new heavens and the new earth and you cross a different river, the River Jordan, and you get to that shore, that crystal shore, and you look out at the face of Jesus, you will know that every dead end of this life was a path to your deliverance. For he works all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. All things. For their good. You may not see it here, but you will see it. Sit still. Be quiet. For one day soon, you will see in the ultimate sense the salvation of the Lord. Father in heaven, we pray that that day would be hastened, that it would come quickly, for we long to know the fullness of your redemption. Lord Jesus, would you meet with us in grace even now, ministering to the variety of burdens and sorrows and hurts and challenges and doubts and deceits that are here in this room. Lord, would you minister to us by your grace? And would you give us the eyes to see, the hearts to believe, and the wills to obey everything that you have spoken. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.